0: Welcome aboard. We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime. Ready when you are, CB. Action. Welcome to Monoreal Radio, episode number 79. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. And we are here to bring you... A very fun couple of weeks here. Some of those later Disney Renaissance films as we build up to the release of the live-action remake of Mulan. And uh, we can discuss whether or not we are excited for that as we get closer to its release. Certainly we will discuss it when we review the Mulan animated classic. But before we get there, we have to go back a few years and start with Pocahontas.
1: Yes, because Lord knows they're not going to remake this one anytime soon.
0: No, I, I, I don't. If know, ever, if ever, I don't really know that you can. If we're being totally honest about that, it it would be, it would be very difficult subject matter. I think like it's doable, but it might be a little too dark for a Disney remake.
1: It's dark. There's obviously a lot of racially insensitive terms, which we're going to talk about. Um, but there's a lot of changes they'd have to make. I mean, it was one of those things that we talked about like when we did Lady in the Tramp and how are they going to address the Siamese cats. Right. And they completely flipped that on its head. They got rid of the song. There was still a song and they still de- destroyed everything. Yeah. But I have a feeling if they eventually do remake this one they're going to annihilate everything that we know about it
0: i think that you're right because this movie and we're going to we're going to get into the plot and we're going to review everything in just a moment here but i think given the subject matter you can sort of get away with for a lack of better term dumbing things down a little bit because it is animation I think given the circumstances and given especially what native americans went through and some of the battles that they still fight today because obviously people are a lot more sensitive now than they were even 20 or 25 years ago when the movie came out so i think to try to put this story to live action <clears throat> excuse me without making it seem watered down i just don't think that they could pull it off if it's not done in animation.
1: Right. And then you I mean obviously you have to have historical accuracy, but you don't want to necessarily make it a biopic either because right. that's going to ruin everything that makes the animation fun.
0: Right, because for those who don't know, Pocahontas was a real person and this is like hardly loosely based on a true story. The, the for for this iteration of the of the story, they basically just took her name. And in the name of a few other people who were around at the time. But for the most part, I mean, I I do believe, based on what I know about Pocahontas, this is a complete departure from the real thing.
1: Exactly. But here's how it goes. Yes. In 1607, a group of English settlers sailed to the New World, led by Governor Ratcliffe for the Virginia Company. While most of the crew, like the famed John Smith, are in search of a new life and adventure, Ratcliffe is in search of gold and plans to pillage the New World to gain wealth and status. Meanwhile, in the old New World, Chief Powhatan has just returned from battle and greets his daughter Pocahontas with a gift. Powhatan gives Pocahontas her mother's necklace and tells her that the warrior Kokowum has asked for her hand in marriage. Pocahontas proudly wears her mother's necklace, but is unsure about cocoam and goes to seek advice from Grandmother Willow, along with her friends Flit and Miko. Grandmother Willow tells Pocahontas to listen to her heart, which leads Pocahontas to discover strange clouds. The clouds are actually the sails of the Virginia Company making a landing at what they dub Jamestown. Ratcliffe orders his men immediately to start building their fort and digging for gold. John Smith sets out to explore the land and realizes that it is different than any new world he has been to before. He sees Pocahontas and the two are immediately fascinated by each other and also realize they have a lot to learn from one another. Despite Powhatan's orders to stay away from the new settlers and Ratcliffe's orders to kill any Native Americans they find without hesitation, Pocahontas and John Smith continue to spend time together, which eventually leads to a romance. Pocahontas' best friend Nakoma discovers their relationship— and instead of covering for her friend, she tells Cocoam that Pocahontas is in danger. Cocoam tracks down Pocahontas and finds her kissing John Smith, and when he attacks, is shot by Thomas, who Ratcliffe sent out to find John. John tells Thomas to disappear and allows himself to be captured by Powhatan's tribe instead. Enraged by Cocoam's death, Powhatan sends messengers to their neighboring village to unite them and declare war on the Virginia Company, starting with John's execution. Thomas goes back to Jamestown and reports John Smith's capture, and Ratcliffe uses it as an excuse to rally the troops and take their focus off of his non-existent gold. Desperate for a solution, Pocahontas again goes to Grandmother Willow for advice, but realizes she has to be the one to stop this. As dawn breaks, Pocahontas arrives to the battle as her father is about to kill John Smith and convinces him not to. Powhatan realizes that blind hatred has already caused so much violence, he doesn't want to be responsible for any more, and calls for peace. Ratcliffe does not believe the truce and attempts to shoot Powhatan, but John dives in front of the bullet. To survive, he must go back to England and is sent with Grandmother Willow's healing bark and a promise that Powhatan will always welcome his people. Pocahontas must now choose whether or not to go with him and decides to stay with her tribe and help build the relationship with the new settlers. And that is the very basic story of what happens to the characters, which is much more heavily layered with themes of overcoming prejudice, which we're going to talk about.
0: Right. I'll be honest with you that I, I would have even skimmed that plot down even shorter than what you just did. I I've always felt and I will say going into the um, going into this week and, and sitting to watch this movie, I did not enjoy this movie as a kid. I never did. I watched it a few times. I watched it a couple of times as a young adult because I hadn't probably watched this in the last 10 years or so.
1: No, it was at least 10, because I made you give it another chance.
0: And I didn't like it then either. Um, so I was interested to see if my opinion had changed upon watching it now with some fresh eyes. Um, yeah, I, like I said to you before, I think I could have dumbed down that plot even more than you did.
1: No, and it's funny because I left a lot out, too. Like I left out the whole Miko and Percy subplot. I left out Pocahontas's visions and her dreams and the spinning arrow and all of that. But I mean, that's the kind of stuff we're going to talk about now because this is what I do like about this movie. We had mentioned this when we reviewed Remember the Titans. I just like films like this in general, where the plot and the theme are so married that one drives the other and Mm -hmm. I think this movie does a really good job of that
0: I agree with you in that I think without skipping ahead too much here I think the overall message of the film is good and I think it works in harmony with what you see on the screen and with the songs that you hear that's the film in totality though in terms of just the script i i understand it's native americans and it's english settlers but in a weird way i i see parts of west side story in here I see parts of the Little Mermaid in here. Oh, for so sure. I, To me, it's going to sound stupid, but it's, it's far from an original concept. You're kind of just changing out the conflict and the characters.
1: That's a very good point, but the Lion King is Hamlet, and that's a masterpiece.
0: I agree with you. That there's just something about this movie that going into it, and admittedly, without burying the lead here, there I, I don't know what it is. But there is just something about this movie that just doesn't jive with me. And in 25 years, if it hasn't totally jived with me, it's just never going to.
1: Well, let me ask you something. Do you like West Side Story?
0: Not really. I think it's very cheesy. I'm, I don't like West Side Story. I love The Little Mermaid. But no, I don't like West Side Story at all. Fair enough. So I guess if you are going to, I like Grease more than I like West Side Ooh. Story. Just to, and oh, for that's those, so harsh for the for the loyal listeners of the show to know how we have at times torn Grease apart. I like Grease more than I like West Side Story.
1: Maybe that's what we should do for our hundredth episode, which is quickly approaching. We'll do, we'll do a bonus episode and we'll just finally rip Grease a new one
0: but no i refuse it's it's that's totally off brand for us and it's totally out of our realm we're here to talk about the films of disney not just films in general but now you ask that question and maybe that's where i'm having an issue over the course of all of these years connecting with this movie because the first thing i compared it to is a film that i don't like
1: well you know what's kind of interesting to me too is that this era of Disney films is when we start to see the departure from the princess movies. You know, yeah. they did this one. Granted, Pocahontas is supposed to be a princess among her tribe because she's the right. daughter of a chief. So yeah. she's still a princess. But it's not your traditional. I mean, this this is not your Belle, your Jasmine, your Ariel. Of course. Um And then, you know, later we see the Hunchback and Hercules. So this is where they started to make the turn, I think, to appeal to boys a little bit more. And, you know, they do that, obviously, with John Smith. I think, you know, the introduction of a character like that who's, you know, very masculine and seeking adventure. It's just surprising that you were right in the demographic and you were right you know the age where you needed to be to to like this film and have it grab you as a kid and it just never did. It's just, it's interesting to me.
0: And I think a lot of that will come from when we move past the script to start discussing characters. Mm-hmm. Because I think if anything where a lot of this falls apart for me it's in character more than it is anything else. Really? Yeah. Dang. Yep.
1: Um well, you did hit on something before that I want to circle back to before we get too much further, and um, it is probably the biggest flaw that I find with this film. Um, obviously, they're English settlers, and they're coming to Native American land. Um, you know, aside from the obvious stealing of the land and how horrible that is and taking something that doesn't belong to you, you know, that that's a real-life issue. Right. But in terms of this, what I really don't like... I can appreciate the sentiment of listen with your heart and you will understand. And I think that that's a great overall theme for the movie. And I think that's a very on brand theme for Disney. Like Uh I could see like Jiminy Cricket or the fairy godmother saying something like that. So I definitely think, you know, that's just an overall theme for Disney, which is wonderful. But in this case, Grandmother Willow says it to Pocahontas and she is all of a sudden fluent in English and I feel like you have to suspend a lot of disbelief to buy into that and I also think it might have made for a more interesting conflict if they didn't understand each other. Because, I mean, here's the thing. They don't understand each other culturally, but if they literally couldn't understand each other, they really would have had to work a lot harder to find this common ground. And I also think, one step further, it was a smart choice not to make the animals talk because it does make it that much more realistic.
0: I agree with that. I agree with the animals not having speaking lines. Although there was an animal that was supposed to have a speaking line. We will get to that when we start breaking down characters. Because it would have certainly been a very interesting twist on this film, and maybe it's something that would have kind of put the movie over the top for me, for Mm. many reasons, and I'm just going to leave that there. But you're right, because when Pocahontas and John Smith meet each other for the first time, she's not speaking English. And then can just launch into it. So I think things like that are... if that's, That is not what disconnects this film from me, but I had that noted as well as a flaw that I was going to call out
1: as well. No, and they do drive that point home. Speaking of them meeting for the first time, it's such an amazing... I wouldn't even call this a meet-cute because there's no flirtation right away he's got her at gunpoint yeah but the amazing thing is she doesn't even know to be afraid of it because she doesn't know what it is yes so if you kept that kind of realism that you know establishing that the native americans didn't have that technology why just give her the fluency in english it I, it's, it's I, I a mean, little bit of a
0: cop out. I understand because before she meets John Smith, she and her father and the rest of the tribe and kokum they're all speaking English. Right. But then again, you're not going to have them speak in their native tongue per se and then put half the movie in, in subtitles. subtitles.
1: Sure. But I guess I feel like, you know, look at what Ursula tells Ariel when she can't speak for three days. Yeah. Use your body, body language. language. Exactly. It would have been more of a hurdle to overcome. It would have added another layer
0: to what is otherwise kind of a very basic movie. What? Yeah. I I don't I don't find this movie to have a lot of twists and turns. I think it's I think it's sorta of just there
1: there's not a lot of twists and turns but i think the movie is layered so beautifully with how they handle all of the prejudice
0: i'm not arguing the point that the movie makes but I, I think I think this movie's bland. I think this script is bland on a very basic level. There's just not a lot going on there for me.
1: Well, here's the other thing with the script too. I think this is one of the most wordy scripts that they have. I mean I'm curious to to know actually, and I wish I could have found it how how long how many pages the actual script is i i have to imagine this is one of the longest scripts because there is you know and again it goes it goes back to making her fluent in english that's part of it is that they talk so much right so it is a very wordy movie up until about the last 10 minutes and then everything is rapid fire cause and consequence
0: yes I wish we would have seen more of that throughout the movie, though. Because this movie is, as you have just pointed out, extremely dialogue-driven. And it doesn't hit a cres... I mean, I I get it, movies don't hit crescendos until the end. But I didn't even feel that there was a very large build-up to it. I guess because even as a kid... No, don't shake your head at me. <laughs> I gonna... I'm sorry. As no, a kid, I didn't
1: want to interrupt you. <laughs> as, even, even as a...
0: What, what year did this movie come out? 95? Yeah. As a the ni- same year as Toy Story, by the way. Yeah. Okay. As a nine-year-old, I felt this movie predictable. From the minute the movie started, I knew what was going to happen. All you had to tell me was that Pocahontas met John Smith and the Native Americans and the settlers did not agree on anything, and I was like, okay. I knew knew how this movie was going to end before it even started, and I think because the movie ends the way I knew it would before the movie started, when I saw it the first time 25 years ago, might be where I feel like this movie does not have a big buildup, does not stray off of the
1: bland path I wish the listeners could see my face right now and the migraine that's forming over what you're saying. Um, two things to go back to what you were hitting on. As far as not having the other any other dynamic up until the last ten minutes, where the action spoke louder than words, so to speak. That's the whole Miko and Percy storyline. Um, Percy, I left out of the plot altogether. That's Ratcliffe's dog, who is maybe the second most pampered dog in the world. Ours being the first. Um, you know, Percy gets off the ship and he, he ends up going out into the woods and he meets Miko and... Who
0: is a raccoon. Who
1: is a raccoon, yes. Um, and again, through, through no words... They hate each other immediately because they don't know what the other thing is. And they fight, and all Miko wants is some food, and Percy's got plenty of it, and he won't share. And it's a metaphor for what's going on around them the entire time. Again, with no words. Okay.
0: That's well done. But I shouldn't have to sit there and defend defend a movie or find joy in a movie or compliment a film because of a subplot with secondary characters
1: you're right but I'm arguing your point of that there's no real conflict throughout the rest of the movie not so much with your main characters because that's the other interesting thing about this one I feel like as far as Disney couples go Pocahontas and John Smith get probably the most time together out of any couple. Like when you think about something like the little mermaid, she rescues Eric. Then she goes back to make the deal with Ursula. And then even on land, they have the kiss the girl sequence and that's really it. Beauty and the beast. um, He's got her captured. And then after she exchanges places with Maurice. And then he doesn't want anything to do with her until, you know, he realized until, you know, really Cogsworth and Mrs. Potts and Lumiere push him to do otherwise. Um, So I feel like they get together earlier than any other Disney couple. They spend more time together, which is funny because they probably have the most conflict out of all of them. And then you're talking about having a crescendo it's the kiss. Every, all hell breaks loose when they kiss because yeah. Kokom is watching on one side. Thomas, who, by the way, if we're going for historical accuracy, is who she really ends up with in real life, and she goes back to England with him. She ends up with John uh, John Rolf
0: in real life.
1: That's who, right. I think it's his brother though. I thought this was supposed Th- they to be are Thomas Ra- Ralph Yeah. But they they kind of put everything into this character before yeah, they did the Pocahontas sequel. Right. But anyway, they also get to their kiss earlier on in the movie than probably any other couple. Little Mermaid, again, it's it's at the end.
0: Well they, it's so many of these princess movies it's you're woken up or you're saved with a kiss. So it happens. By nature it happens so late in a film. Sleeping beauty, Snow White even to a lesser extent, frozen. That kiss never actually happens, but that's very much built up towards the end of the movie.
1: It does happen when Kristoff is. L- May we? May we? Can I?
0: I'm not. I'm not. But I'm talking. Yes, there's that. But I'm talking about when Hans of the Southern Isle is about to do it and pulls away. Oh. This oh, is oh. all by nature of a lot of the early Disney films, and even as they've kind of gotten into the new generation of these films. The kisses between your male and female leads have, as I said before, by nature, been late in the script. So yes, it happens earlier here.
1: Right, no, and that's what I'm saying. Even as far as the Dynasty movies go, Little Mermaid, it's the wedding at the end, Beauty and the Beast, it's how she saves him at the end, and then he transforms. Um, Aladdin Aladdin, Jasmine, Jasmine, it's earlier.
0: Yeah, you're maybe... Three Three quarters? quarters. Yeah. And same
1: with this, but Aladdin and Jasmine's kiss doesn't spawn terror the way this one does.
0: right. Whereas, as you pointed out, you have the factions on both sides see what's happening, and they react differently, but both aggressively at the same time.
1: Exactly. The other interesting thing about this movie that really deviates from your traditional Disney love story, especially in that dynasty era, is that there's no happy ending.
0: Not in the traditional sense. No.
1: Well, because they don't end up together. And, you know, I only realized it upon this viewing. As a kid, I knew Pocahontas stayed, but I could never figure out why, other than that she didn't want to leave her father and her tribe. But What you don't realize, and I think this also may have to do with it being digital now and a little bit sharper, is that half of the settlers stay. Like, we know in real life they established Jamestown and they are now living on the Native American land. But what you don't realize is that, like, half that ship is staying behind to build the new world. And that's why Pocahontas really decides to stay to forge that relationship.
0: Yeah. The other thing I don't want to gloss over here is that it's intriguing to me, looking at this film 25 years later, how I think people would deem some of the language in this film politically incorrect and insensitive because it's a lot of savage this white man that, pale face this. But I got to be honest with you. I think when Disney decided that they were not going to have talking animals in this film and they were trying to really tell a story here and teach us a lesson as well, I have to give them credit where credit is due because quite honestly, I think... That is a... I mean, all of this is loosely depicted on real life, but I do believe this is how both sides did refer to each other at the time that this film would have presumably happened. So the fact that they didn't back away from using harsher language, I'll say... Do I think this language is harsh? No. But I was born in 1986. So, to me, this really isn't very harsh. But there are younger people in our audience who are going to see this movie or have seen this movie and probably can't believe that that exists in a Disney film. But I give Disney credit for doing it. I give them credit for trying to make this as accurate a depiction as... They could. Does that dialogue hold up? A lot of people will tell you that it doesn't. I personally think that it's fine. But then those, there are people who will argue that that's not for me to say as well.
1: I 100% agree with you there. I think that there are people that are going to stumble across this on Disney Plus and be shocked to hear some of those words in a Disney film. I'm not saying that those words are okay. Yeah, I'm not going to go around and
0: start saying them now.
1: Of course not. (laughs) But I'm glad that Disney didn't shy away from it because, you know, you can't gloss over the fact that this still happened, that those words were used. And while we have come a long way since then and we have changed our way of thinking, it still happened and it was horrible and we can still learn from that. Correct. So I think that how they chose to use some of those words, too, it was very deliberate and helped to move the story forward.
0: Yeah, because I am a firm believer, and a lot of people will argue with me on this, and I think that they need to go back to school, that you can't Photoshop history. You can't edit out the bad parts. I agree. Because if you edit out the bad parts, we don't learn anything.
1: Yes, we can be an overly sensitive society now because we learned from the past mistakes.
0: That's correct. And sometimes seeing and hearing things like this while startling to a younger person, they need to understand where this came from. And I think that that ties into what is really the root of what Disney was trying to accomplish when they made this film and the lesson that they tried to teach when they made this film.
1: Right. No. And think of how that builds. It just escalates from the most simple of misunderstanding. And it starts with, you know, a certain way of thinking and a certain prejudice. And then the words come out and then there's just blind hatred. Correct. And that's what the whole movie builds to.
0: Moving on here, you want to talk about the characters a little bit? Because I know that part of my issue with this does fall on characters. Go ahead, I'm ready to shoot you down some more. All right, let's start with our title character, Pocahontas. I have absolutely nothing against her. She's fine.
1: Fine, she's awesome. I think she's got one of the strongest entrances for any Disney princess ever. I mean, we meet her, and Nakoma's like, time to go home, your dad's back, and she just jumps off a cliff and dives into the water. Okay. I'm not I'm saying she's fine. I'm saying she's awesome. I mean, it proves right out of the gate that she's brave. I'm not
0: I'm not denying that she's a strong character. I'm not denying that she's a brave character. Do I like her more than Ariel? No. So, uh, there's just she's she's a very good lead character. I like I like her overall demeanor. I like her overall attitude in that she she does care very much about where she is from and she cares very much about teaching people about where she is from but also wanting more than what her father wants for her so the she does fall into the trap of being a formulaic female lead in a disney movie just like ariel just like jasmine there there is sort of that formula that at times Disney does tend to follow. And she is no different.
1: I mean, I'll give you that one. You know, she's being forced into marriage but thinks, what more is out there for me? Um, but it's interesting that you say that, though, because I feel like her story seems to have influenced Jasmine's arc in the live-action Aladdin. Because Jasmine doesn't just want the right to choose who she marries, she also wants the ability to have power and make decisions that will bring about change. And so does Pocahontas, because she's standing up for what she believes in and fighting for what's right.
0: Yeah, I don't disagree with that observation.
1: What's interesting about Pocahontas is she is one of the last Disney characters to have a separate voice actress for the speaking role and the singing role. She was voiced by Irene Bedard, who is a Native American actress, and the singing voice was Judy Kuhn, who later appears in Enchanted. Gotcha. Um, I find that interesting because the rest of the cast, they did both the speaking and singing roles. Shockingly, Mel Gibson is actually singing as John Smith. Which is, I'm actually pretty impressed. Yeah,
0: um, I was impressed here. I like the casting of Mel Gibson. You know, listen.
1: It's never going to happen again. It's never going to
0: happen again. Certainly not in a movie where you're trying to teach people uh, the problem with biases. (laughs) That would never happen again. Mel Gibson would not star in in a movie. I think Mel Gibson you might see in Lethal Weapon 5 if they ever actually do it because they keep saying they're going to do it. I would be fine with it. Um, I mean, look, we said last week when we talked about Iron Will, I'm not going to defend Kevin Spacey by any stretch of the imagination, but when the guy was good, he was good. You can say the same thing about Mel Gibson.
1: Oh yeah, I mean he was a huge actor of the time and I'm sh- I mean he still is a huge actor and this was before he had some very off-color things to say. Um but yeah, I'm sure Disney was thrilled to get him in
0: this role. You know, in fact, they actually they com- they they compare and contrast very well because um until Kevin Spacey's fall from grace, which I'm not going to compare the the two of them but I think Kevin Spacey's is far worse than Mel Gibson's <laughs> to be honest with you
1: but, yeah Mel Gibson didn't touch anybody right but he said some awful things but, but he, didn't, tu- he but didn't touch anyone the funny thing is when Spacey fell
0: from grace the person you compared him to was Mel Gibson because it was the same it was kind of the same thing like out of nowhere here comes this bombshell this person did this and then they sort of just disappeared because Gibson doesn't really do much anymore. Nobody wants to cast him. But when he was at the top of his game and he landed things like this, he was excellent.
1: Well, I think that's it. Most of what he does now is all from his own production company. Like, he did Passion of the Christ. That was all him. But it's probably... Part of it is because he wants to, you know, explore his own creativity. I think that's half of it. And the other half is nobody wants to work with him. Yeah. And (laughs) the real irony too is that you've got christian bale in this mix as well uh, yeah. who, christian bale just for the record did not insult an entire race of people did not touch children but he did curse out a dp so he's also not the easiest actor to work with but he was in disney's good graces from newsies
0: right and he played thomas here but i want to circle back around yes, to John we Smith. we haven't
1: really talked about john smith
0: um here's what i don't like about john smith
1: oh my lord
0: And it might be minutiae, but these are English settlers coming to the new world. Why does he have an American accent?
1: Are you going to tell Mel Gibson what to do? It's not that
0: I'm going to tell Mel Gibson what to do, but you could have just as easily put Christian Bale in that role. You had a very talented English actor in the role.
1: I feel like Christian Bale... and You know what? It's almost weird to say this after he played Batman and he does give you that really deep voice I feel like it wasn't
0: he might have been a little too young at the time not gruff enough not rough and tumble enough
1: that's the exact word I'm looking for is, is gruff
0: which is amazing because three years I think it was three or four years after this movie he goes out and does American Psycho as Patrick Bateman not rough and tumble but just completely unhinged
1: Right, but as far as the voice itself, I just—I actually think that Mel Gibson was perfect casting. I can't really separate the two in my head. I think he's so good as John Smith. I—I I love that they let him sing, um, and—and and like I said, I was—I was surprisingly impressed. As far as the character, though, we really haven't talked about John Smith the character, um. I like the guy. I think he's just he's got just the right amount of cockiness to be this, you know, sort of adventure hero and I like that that gets broken down by Pocahontas. And you know, just as we, we didn't really mention that we we talked before about, you know, the amount of time they have together, but I really do love the relationship that forms between them and the way that they're able to learn from each other and that first, you know, one of the early conversations that they have leading right into Colors of the Wind, how they're going back and forth with, you know, he just says it so nonchalantly of, well, you don't know you need these things because you don't know any better. And he didn't mean to be insulting, but that is the perfect example of a prejudice and the way people thought, where you think you know better.
0: Yeah. And she calls him on it. She does. And yes, that worked for the character. Um, I don't dislike the character. Um. But one problem that I do have with him is that his character arc was listening to her sing a song. I, I don't feel that he didn't witness anything. Let's say, for example, that um, Pocahontas and John Smith are off together and they're sneaking around, which they've been doing the whole time, and they go to hide and they overhear Thomas call them savages or talk about shooting them dead. Things that had been said in the movie some of it had been said by John Smith which I understand they they say that so that they can you know get to the point in time where he does have his character arc but he listens to her sing a song that's his character arc in this movie. It's not when he jumps in front of the bullet to save her father at the end of the film the same man that was about to Uh, execute him Um, it's not through anything that he saw happen to Pocahontas or anybody else in her tribe he listened to her sing a song and he changed his mind that's John Smith's character arc
1: well it's a very powerful song we are gonna talk about it but I will agree with you there because when it comes when, when they come to realize we have to do something otherwise we're never gonna be together she convinces John Smith to go talk to her father. Obviously, Powhatan is a lot more reasonable than Ratcliffe, but he never tries to go stand up to Ratcliffe. Right. So I will give you that one, is that, yeah, his mind is changed by colors of the wind. But he also, you know, towards the end, when they have him captured, he says, I'd rather, um," you know, he acknowledges, I would have rather have been changed by you and and have my life cut short than have never known you right, um, and at the end I think I think that um, stepping in front of the bullet does no I think you have a pretty solid arc there because I think that that does serve as more than just an act of love that he doesn't want to see her father killed is that he he's also standing up for what's right,
0: but I feel like he had already changed by the time we got to that point.
1: Right, the gunshot is not what makes him change. Correct. It was the song.
0: Let's talk about Thomas for a second because we did just bring him up and we brought up Christian Bale. I like Thomas. I like him because I feel bad for him. It's clear that he is in over his head from the moment they get started and when he shoots Kokuum, he shoots him because... He sees Coquam charging at John Smith, not knowing why he's charging at John Smith, not knowing that he had been, you know, betrothed to Pocahontas for all intents and purposes. Um all he wanted to do was what Ratcliffe and the rest of them wanted him to do.
1: See, I don't know that it's necessarily him les- listening to Ratcliffe. I think it's him seeing his friend attacked because he doesn't really want to shoot; he hesitates. But he's and, trying and he, to
0: prove himself, though.
1: He is, but at the same time, anytime Ratcliffe has given him an order, he he never listens. I mean, part of it is also because he doesn't have a good shot. Um, his his first accurate shot is Kokum, right? Um, but I don't think he ever really want. I think he wanted to be in the new world and he wanted to settle Jamestown, but I don't, you know, then he, from there, he disagreed with Ratcliffe all the way. And you could tell he was like dreading the moment he was going to be faced with this. But you want to talk about a character arc. At the end, he's the one who really takes Ratcliffe down.
0: Yes. And he has that moment where he comes full circle as a character
1: absolutely yeah no i love when he steps up
0: when he does shoot culcum though i mean he shoots him and then walks up and goes is he dead and he immediately regrets that he did it. it without john smith saying no thomas don't you know i and i'm this is just me talking out loud here so i know that that sounds stupid but i just there's nothing there's nothing that leads to him questioning his decision other than He's questioning his decision, which is basically all he's done the entire movie.
1: Right, but it drives home that he never really wanted to kill Coco he wanted to follow orders and didn't really put the two and two together of what that meant. Sure. Um, We've been talking about him a whole bunch. Let's do Ratcliffe. Uh. Oh, you're really going to make me angry on this one, aren't you?
0: He's a horrendous villain. (gasps) He's absolutely horrendous. He's not at all intimidating. The only point in this movie when he is convincing as a villain is when he is manipulating Thomas because he's playing mind games.
1: Well, he's playing mind games with all of them because he knows that there's a possibility that there's no gold in the new world. And a couple of days go by and no one has found anything. And first of all, he's doing this all for personal gain. He wants to be able to take it back and not gain status here in the New World. He wants to take it back... To King James and... Exactly, and get status there. He knew there was a possibility of no gold. Come to find out there really isn't any, and he's manipulating everyone to keep digging and keep going about this as if nothing is wrong.
0: He's like a leprechaun, a tall leprechaun, with pigtails and ribbons. Just talking about the gold, the gold, the gold.
1: He actually, probably because of the ribbons, kind of reminds me of the cowardly line. Yes. In size, stature, and
0: attitude. Yes, but far less endearing.
1: See, I like him, and we can talk a little bit more about this when we when we get to the music, but I, I think there's just such immediate character development with them because... You know, there's the lyric when he's like, I'd help you to dig, boys, but I've got this crick in my spine. And it it just, it's a short little line. It's a throwaway, but it speaks volumes that he's like feigning this back injury because he doesn't want to do the work.
0: I'm not arguing whether or not he isn't a well-developed or well-fleshed-out character. He very much is. But he is not intimidating enough for me to buy him as a villain.
1: I think that's one of those things, though, that serves to make this movie feel so much more real is because there are really people like that. He's a bigot. He's not supposed to be a scary, evil Disney villain. You know, he's not like a... I mean, he's certainly not like a Jafar or a Cruella or anybody in your traditional sense, but I think they strip down the flamboyance and the panache and what I love so much about the villains to make him seem that much more real.
0: Yeah, I guess. I, I mean, I'm not going to agree with you. We can agree to disagree on this. Th- the most you're going to get out of me is, I guess, when it comes to Ratcliffe.
1: Um, so Ratcliffe is voiced by David Ogden Steers, who also voiced his manservant, Wiggins, who in my opinion, is one of the most underrated Disney characters of all time.
0: He's good comic relief.
1: He's hysterical.
0: David Ogden Steers also, by the way, was in Iron Will, which we just discussed as well.
1: And he was also Cogsworth. Yeah, he did a lot
0: with Disney in the early to mid-90s.
1: So initially he was only supposed to be Wiggins. That's how he was cast for this film, uh, but he ended up doing both because they were considering Richard White, who was the voice of Gaston to be Ratcliffe. But because he was so married to the Gaston role, you couldn't yeah. really separate one from the other. Um, he ended up they ended up not casting Richard White. And then uh, David Ogden Sears got to do both.
0: I feel like those two movies being released so close to each other, I mean, you're talking less than five years between the release of each. And Beauty and the Beast was still such a thing at the time. That would have just been a disaster.
1: I think so. But then you've got somebody like Jim Cummings, who you recognize in so many different movies. And he's he's in this too. Right. Which is, that was actually something that I I never knew. He was um, Powhatan's singing voice, I believe. Um And it was so funny because as soon as you said that to me, I was like, oh my God, no wonder it's so familiar. And it was something I always picked up on as a kid. There was a familiarity when the voice got really gravelly. Yep. Specifically when he says, that's why Rivers lives so long. I don't know why I picked up on it and just never put the two and two together. Oh,
0: it is so clear that it's Jim, Jim Cummings once he starts singing.
1: It was familiar to me, but I just never realized.
0: Wiggins is good comic relief because I think the initial comic relief obviously was no longer there for them, so they probably put more on Wiggins, and I'm just guesstimating that, because the original character was a turkey named Redfeather, and John Candy had been cast in that role, and then John Candy passed away while filming Wagons East in Mexico. Um, I think I would have enjoyed this movie a lot more if John Candy had been Redfeather because I think that other than the fact that I love John Candy and I was devastated when he died, it was actually, he was the first celebrity death I ever had to deal with. I was seven years old when he died. Yeah, you were pretty shook. Yeah. It was bad. For a lot of people, that was Chris Farley. For me, it was John Candy. Um, Other than the fact that I love John Candy, I just feel like his comedic timing, his sense of humor, I see where he would have fit in this movie and where I think he would have brought it to the next level where I would have enjoyed it more.
1: Oh, I think this would be in your top five if that was the case, but I do and i don't mean this disrespectfully i disagree um i can't really see him in this movie i think the smartest choice one of the smartest choices that they made was eliminating the character the the animal characters talking um with that said though i would have loved to see john candy in a disney movie in some capacity if he was still alive pixar i feel like would have been the perfect avenue for him
0: oh they would have had a field day with him they would have had an absolute field day
1: One more character I want to hit on because I think this was a really interesting choice for the movie. Um, Grandmother Willow. I love her. I love her sassiness. I love her spunk. I love the understanding. Um, And it's interesting, she almost didn't make the cut. They had Gregory Peck cast in this role. It was supposed to be... um, Old Man River, and it was going to play into the song just around the river band. And um, he actually turned the part down and said he felt that it should be more of a maternal role. Hmm. That's that's amazing. I mean, to care about a story that much where not only do you turn down your chance to be a part of it, but you recognize how to make it better, I mean, that's that's pretty unbelievable.
0: I wonder if he regretted it after. Yeah, really. It would have been interesting to see Old Man River as a character. Artistically, I would have been interested to see how they pulled that off. Um, Obviously, you can put a face on a tree like they did with Grandmother Willow. How they would have personified a river, I don't know. It would have been very, very cool to see, though. Because, you know what? I will say the one thing that I've always appreciated about this film is the animation because I believe that the film is visually stunning. And I've always thought that it was a very cool looking movie and that it was beautifully animated.
1: I agree on all counts. Um, So for this, they went back to that angular, sleeping beauty, 101 Dalmatian style of of uh, animation that it's, it's almost weird to say that flattens the characters out, but at the same time, they figured out a way to do that and make them so angular. Yeah. It's amazing. They also introduced the idea of rotoscoping for this film, and that's a process where, I mean, we know, we've said it a million times that... Disney always used a live-action reference. So this time, instead of sketching what you see being acted out live-action, they would trace over frame by frame. And they actually used Irene Bedard and Mel Gibson as their references.
0: Yeah. I think the tragedy of this film is Disney Plus and Blu-ray and DVD. I agree. I think that this movie does not at all translate digitally.
1: Yeah, because when we watched it this time around, there were some wider shots that lost so much detail in the faces, and there were some really jarring CGI moments and I was looking at it and I was like, this film always blew me away with how beautiful it was. And and I was seeing all of these errors and inconsistencies and I was like, I don't remember it being like this. But I think that's it. I think it's, it's not standing up to the digital format. The colors are still there. The colors are outstanding. The palette is just beautiful. But there were just certain things that, As they become sharper, you start to see the error.
0: At one point, Thomas is drowning, but he's not bobbing or even moving. He's sort of just stiff in the water. There's another shot where John Smith, I don't remember, admittedly, if he was on a boat coming through the mist or if he was walking through the mist, but his hat just materializes on his head. It's not there in one frame, and then it is there in the next. It's I think it was when his helmet.
1: Pocahontas first sees him. He's coming out of the waterfall.
0: Their lips flicker in shade. It's really, it, it's quite awful, actually.
1: And the, uh, I ironically, the skin coloring changes throughout too. And yes, that's something that is a big-time error for a film like this, because when it is based on prejudice, the aesthetic is playing a big part of the story. Correct.
0: No, I understand what you mean. Um, But, yeah, it's it just... It, it's such a shame that, for me, the best part of the movie is the one thing that's lost completely, because... There are scenes, you, you said it before, when the CGI is so jarringly bad. I mean, there's one or two scenes with the boat that they sail in on that, looking at it on Disney+, Plus, I feel like I'm looking at the Oregon Trail from Windows 98.
1: Wow, that's harsh. No, and then there's even, in the beginning, um, when they're in, in the Virginia Company sequence, when they're moving through London, um, you know this this film. It doesn't start with a book on blue velvet. It starts with a painting, and we go into the painting, and it's going over the rooftops, and uh, yeah, it, it just looks like a video game. And they try. What's really sad to me is that they tried to emulate the multiplane camera and give it that depth, and it just falls short. It didn't work. It didn't work at all.
0: Moving on to the soundtrack here, the music, music
1: by Alan
0: Menken and
1: Stephen Schwartz. This is. I can't say the perfect combination because I would never disrespect Howard Ashman like that. But extreme bias because Stephen Schwartz did Wicked.
0: First song. We just talked about the scene. Virginia Company. It's fine. It sets up the movie.
1: It sets up the movie. I love the snark, though. Yes. Because it almost seems like they don't want to do this and they're being for... And I mean, yes, in essence, they are going to the New World for a better life. But, uh... You know, there there's the lyric, or so we have been told by the Virginia Company. There's a lot
0: of this that is tongue-in-cheek that reminds me of um, a lot of the music that Alan Mencken wrote for Enchanted, because that entire movie is tongue-in-cheek. Mm-hmm. More so maybe than any other song he had written for any other Disney film that he had been a part of.
1: You're right, but that, I mean, that film... The entire film is a satire. This one, it's really just this song, but it's, you know, it's just kind of interesting is that out of the gate, they're basically saying that they know that they're being lied to. Right. Before Ratcliffe is even involved. And there's that amazing shot, which I only realized this time around is that he boards the same time as a rat.
0: There's a couple of other small 45 second, 35 second songs. I'm not going to bother getting into those. The next big song, though. Um, after Virginia Company is just around the Riverbend, which I actually think has become a forgotten classic.
1: I would agree with that. I think it's definitely great character development. I think the singing is amazing. I yep. think Judy Kuhn is seriously underrated because she does... Really, up until they cast Idina as Elsa, I think she's got one of the most powerful voices in Disney. Because, you know, you've got... I mean, Jodie Benson sings beautifully. Paige O'Hara sings beautifully. But they have the princess voice. It's not as strong. And I think that that has to do with the character... And that she is Native American, so you did have to go a little bit deeper with it, but I don't think their voices are quite as powerful as Judy Kuhn's.
0: Susan Egan is probably the only other one.
1: Mm. Uh, Yeah, I'll give you that. When she
0: sings in Hercules.
1: Yes, that's true.
0: She's outstanding. Yeah. But yeah, I think that this is a great way to introduce Pocahontas to us as a character. I think it does a good job... It does a good job of giving us backstory without us having to waste time on a ton of unnecessary backstory. You accomplish that in a two minute and 27 second song.
1: Right. And I think, you know, they did kind of flex their muscles a little bit with the animation, too. It's kind of, it gets a little flashy, and they showed, you know, what they were really trying to accomplish with the colors.
0: Yeah. Uh, the next song is mine 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 which does feature david ogden steers and mel gibson as well as the chorus it's a good back and forth again i think that it does a good job of setting up certainly ratcliffe
1: it's my jam it's probably one of my favorite disney villain songs um I like the sequence. I like what they're doing with the dirt spinning around. I like Wiggins running in and out, adding his little commentary. Um, but yeah, it it definitely sets up the character. And you know, I said it before. I was really impressed that that was Mel Gibson.
0: Colors of the Wind. Um, this has become, and rightfully so one of the most significant films in the history of the Walt Disney Company. I think it is a beautiful song. I think that it totally holds up, but like so much else in this film, I think the scene in general looks better on VHS.
1: I definitely have to agree as far as the animation goes, but... The song still doesn't lose anything over time. I think it's one of the most powerful messages we've ever gotten from Disney. Um, I remember when this came out. I I mean, I barely remember the trailer for this movie, but I remember hearing this song. I think the song almost was the trailer. That was really all they gave you, and it was all they needed to. Um, but the song was just everywhere. Um, and I think, I hate to say it, it, is, it has kind of fallen by the the wayside. I think that it should be incorporated into the parks more, especially when you do have the the film, you have an entire sequence in Fantasmic.
0: Right. I don't know that the, I don't think that Colors of the Wind is nearly as forgotten as Just Around the Riverbend.
1: I would agree with you there, but... And in fact, I remember
0: just around the river bend from the trailer more than Colors of the Wind.
1: Yeah, I remember her in the canoe going over the waterfall. It
0: may have been in one of the early trailers.
1: But if you're talking about the cornerstone of this film... Yes. It's Colors of the Wind. Yes,
0: it is. And it should
1: be. And it should be more predominantly in the parks.
0: Agreed. Because it is, in my opinion, and I'm sure you would agree, it's the best song in the movie.
1: No, and that's where... As difficult as it's going to be to pull off a live action Pocahontas, I think it's worth trying for this song.
0: I love the stylized colors in the wind that resemble their faces. I think that it's it's so great and it's it's so bastardized when it's done digitally. I mean it's it just it loses everything that was special about it.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. Um, I like, this was like their first foray into doing like those little abstract scenes within the musical numbers. We see it a lot more in Hercules, you yeah. know, when they get into the the clay pots and all yep. that kind of stuff. Um, but this was, you know, Disney's tiptoe into that.
0: And the last song is Savages.
1: You know, we were talking about it before that we appreciate that Disney didn't shy away from historical accuracy. Um, I know they did run into some trouble with the song when it first came out and they had to change some of the lyrics because they were a lot more harsh and actually a lot more violent. Like they were talking about killing the native Americans and they didn't want to go quite that far with it. Um, But what I really like is that Savage sort of takes on a double meaning and Yes, initially it is the settlers talking about the Native Americans and they're saying they're heathens and they're barely even human. But when the song flips and the Native Americans are singing about it, they say the exact same thing, that they're barely human, and it's because they mean that they're so cruel.
0: Right, and they're willing to just tear the earth apart for its resources. The movie does do a good job, especially in this song, of playing both sides.
1: I think it does a good job of being well-balanced throughout the entire film, but for anybody that disagrees, I think this song is proof that they played both sides of it.
0: Sure. Final synopsis here, and then maybe we talk about our dream cast for a live-action remake. Sure.
1: Um, well, I think both of us, for both of us, our opinion since childhood hasn't changed. I love this movie as a kid. I love it now. Uh, Does it hold up? I'm going to go out on a limb and say yes, despite some of the language that would be questionable now and the difficulty that I think that they're going to have doing a live action. Um, I don't think anything else matters but the message that this film sends. And that's really the most important thing.
0: Overall, I do like the message of the film. Does the film hold up? Yes and no. The language doesn't bother me. I think the message should... I I think the message is timeless. I think, and I've said it before and I will say it again and I don't care if I'm repeating myself, it looks terrible. Digitized. So, does the animation hold up? No. No. In that regard, no. In that regard, no. If you pop in a VHS tape, it looks great. So you know what? If you're going to watch this movie for the first time, or if you're going to show this movie to your kids for the first time, get your hands on a VCR, pop in the VHS tape. Don't just throw it on Disney+. Plus. Don't put on a DVD. Don't put on a Blu-ray, because it doesn't do the movie justice. So we both agree that the movie holds up, which would lead us to the eventual live action remake because they're going to do it. We started this episode with I don't know if you can. I still don't know if you can. But they're, but gonna. they're gonna do it anyway. <laughs> so, Dreamcast. Let's go a little back and forth here.
1: For Pocahontas, I think what they should really do is go with an unknown.
0: Die, I agree.
1: Get it culturally accurate, have a Native American actress play the part. I feel like if we're going based on who Pocahontas looks like, probably Gal Gadot, but she's, I think, too old, which I hate to say. Um, I think she's also, because she's Wonder Woman, she's, like, way too badass for this.
0: Yeah, well, that's she's she's Israeli, so she has that ethnic look to her. Right, right. But I don't think she can pull off Native American. Not even close. So I agree. I think it has to be an unknown.
1: No, and I understand that she's not Native American. I know she's Israeli. But just coincidentally, before her rise to fame, Pocahontas was out. And to me, she just kind of looks like Gal Gadot. But I think the smartest thing to do would be, I I would, you know, that's it. I think half the cast should be Native American.
0: Right. Who do you have for John Smith? Do you have anybody?
1: Maybe Chris Hemsworth. Just as far as the... Well, granted, he is Australian. You'll get your accent. He could pull off an English accent. Um, But, again, same thing. I mean, we didn't know who Chris Hemsworth was back when Pocahontas came out, but John Smith kind of looks like him.
0: I don't care if they look exactly like their animated counterpart. So... I picked Daniel Craig of course you did other than the fact that I love James Bond I think Daniel Craig is an extraordinary talent and you know they talk about you know I found 188 new worlds it's it has to be an actor that is a little bit older somebody that is more middle-aged if he's gone on this Who's many been adventures. I don't see anybody better. I mean, who better than Daniel Craig?
1: No, and he does carry himself with that sort of cockiness that I think is which is also why I picked Chris Hemsworth, because, I mean, hello, Thor. Nobody's cockier than Thor. Right. Except maybe for Star-Lord.
0: Let me ask you, you love your Disney villains. Who do you have for Ratcliffe? Alfred Molina. So that's a very interesting choice. If you're looking for somebody who could physically look like the original character, Alfred Molina would be a very good casting choice.
1: Yeah, I think I answered you with a lot of conviction there. You did. I'm pretty convinced in my mind it would be Alfred Molina.
0: And I like that casting choice. But I had somebody in mind as well... Not going to physically resemble Ratcliffe at all, because I think Ratcliffe looks ridiculous with his pigtails and his pink ribbons. (laughs) But you need somebody who can pull off being aggressive, who can be manipulative, who can be borderline unhinged, because I don't like how eccentric Ratcliffe was. And I think it would be very funny to get an original cast member... In a remake, which is why I picked Christian Bale (laughs) to be recast as Ratcliffe.
1: I mean, I would love to live in that world. I'll, yeah, aesthetically, he's going to look nothing like him. But I would love to see what he could do. Actually, no, you know where I would like to see him recast? Is Wiggins.
0: No, I want to see Ben (laughs) Wishaw as Wiggins.
1: Oh, good one.
0: That was my choice.
1: Sean Hayes for me.
0: Yeah, he'd be good. He'd be. I like him a lot. But we're interested to know what you all have to say about Pocahontas. Is your review similar to mine? Is it similar to Jackie's? If they do a live action remake, who is your dream cast? You can let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio. You can also shoot us an email, Monorail Radio. At gmail.com. We're going to have news this week coming up in just a second. But first, we do have some exciting news for you. Jackie and I have never been to Walt Disney World for Halloween.
1: No. We always go November. Always for Christmas.
0: So... It just happens to be that we're going to be an hour and a half away from Disney in October. So we decided, you know what? Let's go experience Walt Disney World at Halloween. So we are excited because we have purchased tickets to Mickey's not-so-scary Halloween party, which we've never done before. And I'm very excited because we love Very Merry. I'm told this is better. I don't know how accurate that is, but I'm excited to see the Headless Horsemen and the Gravediggers making sparks down Main Street USA during the parade.
1: I have already started my save up for all the Haunted Mansion memorabilia fund.
0: Yeah, because you know there'll be a ton of it. (sighs) Hopefully by then it'll be reopened.
1: I'm going to need a bigger suitcase.
0: Um, The other thing that we're going to do is we're going to do another monorail with monorail. We did it this past November. We did the monorail pub crawl. We did have a couple of listeners jump in and join us, and we had some giveaways, and it was an awful lot of fun. We're going to do that again, but listen, at the time of this recording, it's early March 2020. We're not going until the end of October 2020, so we're not going to throw any dates out there just yet because I don't anticipate you to remember any of them. But just know that it's coming. Keep an eye on the social media as we get closer. Obviously, stay in touch with Monoreal Radio on the social. Stay in touch with the podcast as well. Make sure that you're listening every week because as we get closer... We are going to give you more information. And with that being said, we also have a travel agent who's not only going to help us get there, but can help you go as well.
1: Yes, I'm so excited that I got to plan a Disney trip for us because I really didn't think we would be planning one for this year. Yeah. Next year's going to be a big one.
0: Yep. But we got a lot going on next year, but I don't want to even drop that right now. No,
1: but I'm excited to plan a trip for us. I want to plan one for you. So you can hit us up on any of our social media outlets at Monoreal Radio on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can email us at mon- monorealradio at gmail.com or you can email me at j.zolezzi, that's Z-O-L-E-Z-Z-I at magicalvacationplanner.com.
0: News this week. It seems like... This has been under construction forever. Today was the grand opening of Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway at the MGM Studios.
1: Yeah. Sorry, kids.
0: I know you call it Hollywood Studios. We call it MGM. You're less than enthused about this.
1: I was less than enthused when I found out they were taking out Great Movie Ride because Call Me Bias... Um there's a little podcast that I happen to know that, you know, was inspired by the Great Movie Ride script in their intro. Yeah. I mean look. And now now it's a relic.
0: It it is a relic. Um I love the great movie ride. I would have been just as happy seeing it stay. Every time Disney has done a refurb or taken something away, we've kicked, we've screamed. And we've been very upset about it.
1: And then we go see it, and we're like,
0: oh, this is great. Because every, uh, ba- almost every time they've made it better, unlike the other park down the road that ruined my childhood and replaced it with nothing. Um, I'm excited. Mickey Mouse does not, up until today, didn't have his own attraction. He didn't have Toontown anymore in the Magic Kingdom, which is where New Fantasyland went. So, Another
1: thing they should have left alone.
0: I like New Fantasyland.
1: I like it. No, and you can still get Toontown and Disneyland, and you can go see Roger Roger Rabbit too. so okay, fine.
0: I I mean, it does incentivize you to go coast to coast, doesn't it?
1: It does. I am not going to dispute that Mickey and Minnie needed a ride. That's a given. What, you know, my lack of enthusiasm, too, also comes from... This took like two years to do. You opened an entire land and built half a hotel before you got this one out.
0: I mean, yeah, this has taken forever and a day, but this is nothing new for Disney. You know, I have a Six Flags season pass. I've said it on the show before. It's, I mean, Disney and Six Flags, it's apples and oranges. You can't even compare them. However, Six Flags will get a high octane roller coaster built in seven months. If Disney did it, it would take two years. I I get it. They don't have the interactive queue that Disney has, so it's different. But in terms of just getting a coaster built, it seems like they can do everything in half the time that Disney does it.
1: Now, see, to me, that should take two years to do a coaster like that.
0: I mean, uh, if you think about the Justice League ride, that's a great attraction that Six Flags has. They got it up in seven months? I think it only took them about seven months. And that was a complete building from top to bottom, plus the track and the interactive system. Well, the point is, though, yes, this has taken forever, so I can see where maybe you're over it before you've even gotten on it, but I am resisting the urge to watch videos online. I haven't Same. watched videos for that. I haven't watched videos for Rise of the Resistance. Same. Because I just want to experience it for myself.
1: No, I agree. Because I was thinking about it, especially because the ride just celebrated its 25th anniversary, it's Indiana Jones in Disneyland. And I will never forget the first time on that ride because I had no idea what was going to happen. And I don't want to say it because I don't want to ruin it for those who haven't been on it. But like when Indy drops... On the rope, I had no idea it was coming. And I will never forget how shocked and awed I was by that. And those are the moments that I want to have on these new rides.
0: Absolutely. Uh, Again, let us know if you are excited about Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook uh, at Monoreal Radio. You can email us as well, monorealradio at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for joining us. Don't forget to follow us on that social media, subscribe to the podcast and share the episode with your friends. You know that we love to interact with you guys and you know that we love to hear from you. So again, thank you so much for Jackie. I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Montreal radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.